and I have returned from my adventures in cap polishing, but I have to do some more next week. So again, next week we hear the dulcet tones of Sandy and this chap. Hello, me, Adam Ray, on I Am The Night podcast. Yes, indeed. And this is episode 55 of our show, which covers, oh, finally, at last, episode 60 and 61 of Batman the Animated Series, The Demon's Quest, parts one and two, written by the legendary Dennis O'Neill for part one, co-written by Dennis O'Neill and uh, the almost as legendary Len Wayne for part two, and both episodes beautifully directed. By Kevin Altieri. Adam, all your son. Your yes, you, uh, you took a long and needed break from your cat polishing quest to cover this episode because <laughs> I feel like you <laughs> truly needed to give this one your full approval, and I can honestly see why. This, something about the scope of this episode, the, I don't know whether it's the geographical nature of it, mm. the gravitas of the yeah. villain, the moral issues of the gravitas of the villain, or some combination of all of those just made this feel like a huge event within oh, the yeah. context of the show. So I felt like this was something that drew you in by reputation and by reputation of the strength of the original story from the classic vintage comics. But sure enough, yes, it was warranted to just give this one its full meaty attention because it was a huge cinematic piece, even for Batman animated series standpoints. Truly epic. I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is one of those stories that... You know me. Mm. Um, I grew up loving. This is a story from the early 70s and from the era which literally cemented my love of Batman, the, the whole Denny O'Neill era. And obviously, you know how I felt after his very sad passing last year. And this story was uh, one of the most famous ones written by him and drawn by the legendary Neil Adams, who you and I have met and who we have a signed Joker picture of. Yeah. Um, so so many memories and episode one uh obviously shortened cut but beat for beat the story points identical to the original saga of historical stories from the comic books the big and foremost introduction to the character's thoughts and methods the villainous rather than gruel he um needed to test batman in this sort, yes. sort of way some may have been more surprised by the nature of the test, but some may have seen it to be potentially a bit more obvious. But either way, it was a great many hoops for the bat to jump through to prove oh, yeah. quite a few things on this long and arduous quest. Absolutely. I would love, because obviously as much back in 1992, 1993 as now, I went into this episode knowing virtually everything that was going to happen but still loving every second of it. I'd love to sit and chat about this episode to someone who knows very little or nothing about Russell Gould and to see this story for the first time and see just how... He's not insane. He's actually a very smart man, but how... Misguided. Wisted and misguided and how hugely intelligent. I mean, the, like you said, the rings and hoops he makes Batman jump through. Astonishing. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is you'd like me to invite Sandy onto the show more often. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Definitely. If, if the last episode you did is anything to go by, I can't wait to hear the second. Yeah, we had a lot of fun together, her and I, and it's, uh, she had a very different take because then again, she, there were two very different episodes that her and I looked at. Uh, recording yes. Needed Advance is uh, definitely a good one, and you'll be able to hear that very soon, dear listener. But in any case, just to get a fresh perspective on a big, huge, and very highly important story like this would be worthwhile doing. Absolutely. I mean, this episode, just like you said brilliantly at the beginning, 
felt special, felt epic, felt grand. And it's the first episode that has an actual pre-title card sequence. Mm. That really surprised me. I think that that whole lack of a title card and just having the title there is just sort of transparent over the rest of the events in yes. both episodes, that made it feel much more cinematic, yeah. or at the very least just a very stark contrast against the rest of the show. Absolutely. Which is, I think, a, an important thing to be able to manage and like put forward. But still, that set the precedent that this was something special from the beginning, and I think it delivered. Completely agree with you. I love the fact from the very beginning that you see Robin obviously coming home, coming to Wayne Manor, and obviously that's the last place anyone would expect to be ambushed. And he's corralled by a group of men, one wearing a terrifying mask of Anubis, mm. of uh, Egyptian myth, and he's captured. And then, to add uh, fuel to the fire and an even bigger surprise, when Batman gets home, he gets the letter addressed to Bruce Wayne, opens it up, and a picture of the kidnapped Robin addressed to Batman. And lo and behold, there is Ubu and Russell Ghul in the back. Uh, this is very rare, so I'm actually going to enjoy the moment where I get to slide my glasses up my nose and say, um, actually, Robin returned to the university, because that's where he lives. Oh, great. Well said. Yes, you're absolutely correct. And it's the same in the comics. I should have known that. I just got lost by the photos of Bruce on the mantle and stuff like that. But yes, again, coming home. Yeah, but then again, there was <laughs> pictures of Bruce on the mantle alongside um, pictures of uh, uh, original Flying Grayson's posters. Yes, well said. Because well, yeah. he remembers his parents now and his parents then and there's a great way to honor them and it's also great like i don't want to say set design because they're not actually designing a set but it is technically set design yeah it is, it is. so it just adds less realism and respect to the character they were able to incorporate those kinds of details into the background so it was very nice indeed but sure enough uh, the shock of seeing a stranger in the in the Batcave because something i'm going to mention when it comes around to later episodes, we see the Batcave is this sort of safe, mm -hmm. impregnable sanctum. Oh, yeah. It's only where Batman and his allies are and go. No one else goes in there. So when we see an antagonistic force suddenly barge in, yes, or a strange force in the form of Reservoir, we feel we're immediately on pause, like, you shouldn't be here. I don't like you. I don't trust you. You shouldn't be here. Yeah, and it happens so rarely. I mean, it's only happened twice in this series so far, but when it does happen, it really does set your heads on edge, doesn't it? Truly, really does. Absolutely brilliant. And of course, like I said, episode one, really accurate, really comics accurate, adapts story fantastically well, but that makes sense because it's written by Denny O'Neill. And the character beats with Russell Gull and Ubu and always letting the master move first. Fantastic. I love that, apart from, of course, when it suits them, but we'll talk about that. But again, and you knew I was going to say it, Batman as a detective from the game. Batman as a detective was on show throughout because he was immediately on pause when there was a stranger in his mm -hmm. base. So he knew to be suspicious and to sort of microanalyze him as to this possible degree, and it paid off. But even so, just to look at the photograph, just to be able to know, oh, this blade and this blade is from a cult from this part of the world, mm. and these ropes are probably from the same part of this part of the world, so they were able to zero in on this one little Fantastic. corner of India. Just having that kind of forward knowledge, having that very niche level of research that Sherlock Holmes is certainly known for, mm -hmm. someone that Batman trained under, technically, it was something that 
just makes clear and makes a lot of sense. At the same time, when you think about it, that information is very specific, but it's also something that I would realistically know because that's part of the training to be a detective, and that's the only moniker that as all the level call them by. Absolutely. I mean, knowing where terrorist cells are based, where these cults exist, where the assassins uh, make their homes is makes sense for Batman to know this stuff. So recognising that knife, recognising that rope, it's little things like that that just make me smile. Yeah, because it's them characterising Batman in all angles. I love and I want more media like this where Batman is oh, the yeah. noir grey detective. Absolutely. Which is why you and I were both stunned by how brilliant a comic that had no business being brilliant, the Batman Fortnite crossover is because of that wholehearted detective style. Yep. Even when Batman doesn't at his full uh, mental faculties, yeah. he still has that critical thinking and lateral mindset to be able to work his way through being stuck in a Battle Royale-esque time loop. Indeed. Absolutely. And it's not just Batman who is archetypal in this episode. We see him as the fighter, the warrior, the detective and everything that goes with it, the father to Dick Grayson. I mean, obviously, the level of emotion there between him and Alfred of Dick's appearance was brilliant, but also archetypal Russell Gould dropping hints about his age. I mean, he dropped Napoleon's name the way we drop the names of comics creators we interview. It's bonkers. Well, when you're a figure from history <laughs> like that, um, it would be quite cool to have met uh, right? Napoleon. So circa when did this episode come out, roughly? 93, because it started in 92 and this was well a, a year into it. Okay, so plus episode, 1993, 600, so 13, 6, 1393 yeah. is roughish. 14th century. Yes, so he would have lived through the Crusades, he would have yep. lived through the Black Death. Well, we know about that because of the Order of St. Dumas and stuff like that, those connections, yes. Yep, uh, the Renaissance, uh, Industrial Revolution, the Enlightenment. He would have met a cross-section of great figures of modern history, depending on where he was at the time. Seeing, seeing Shakespeare's plays live. Um, oh, jealous. That would have been cool. It's, it's, it's always interesting to sort of like contextualise immortal characters. That's something I like to do a lot. As a as a fantasy writer, I handle a lot of elves, which live up to a thousand years plus. So knowing the weird stretches of time is quite handy when you're figuring in immortal characters. So yeah, him dropping names like Napoleon and saying he's been alive for 600 years is a natural thing for someone with that kind of longevity. And do you not think as well that because he's that old, he remembers the world through rose-tinted glasses of when he thought it was better, less industrialised, less spoilt, less ravaged by mankind? Because to be honest, I'd imagine that he spent his early days as a creator and a leader of men as just one of those like superpowers on the fringes of an empire mm -hmm. going forth doing stuff for Byzantines and um, Renaissance Italian nobles doing what have you whenever. But when the Industrial Revolution hit and he saw that the atmosphere was changing, deforestation was starting to be a thing, then he took on his current mission and became yeah. more violent and the way he is now. Indeed. So it makes sense for him to want to return things to what he thought was better because he's lived with that probably longer than he's lived in the world as it is now. Absolutely. And, and the worst thing, or possibly the best thing, because it shows what a brilliantly imagined and realised character he is, that I do agree with him in many, many respects. And like his daughter says, that he does believe that what he wants is right, but the way he gets to what he wants is wrong. Ultimately speaking, the he falls under the banner of like a, a green extremist. 
he's yes. he's somewhat of a green terrorist, but a very with a very extreme slant. The the motivations are very noble. Ultimately, there's this is something I uh, heard on a informational web video I saw today. Technically speaking, right now we are closer to living T Rexes than to living T Rexes are closer to Stegosauruses. Wow, really? That's how old life on Earth is, and that's just wow. like some of the some of the scopes of the life on Earth. So, ultimately speaking, conservation efforts and the drive towards uh, stopping climate change by restoring the rainforests and cutting carbon emissions that helps preserve the Earth insofar as in humans' place in it. Yeah. If we drive the Earth to an extinction-level event where the, the sky is clouded over and the oceans are full of mercury or what have you, life of some form will continue. Yeah. Sure, it's the, the correct thing to go for. I'm not saying don't cut your carbon, people, please. We do want to cut actually breathe. Cut the carbon. But ultimately speaking, a true person with green intentions would act in a way that they would recognize pragmatically life on Earth will still exist, even if it's not humans. But then again, humans don't, haven't really been here that long. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're Not worth the trouble. Yes, absolutely. Sharks, alligators, crocodiles, they've been around longer than we have and probably will outlive us all. Yep. Because they're not trying to bomb each other or destroy the planet with emissions. Anyway, get off our soapbox and get back to the show. Back to the show, <laughs> yes, let's do that. But no, it's fascinating. I mean, the fact that we can have conversations like that when watching a Batman cartoon. It's just, it's wonderful. But I want to go back as well to something you again brilliantly said at the top of the show. The epic feel of the episode and uh, the globe-crossing nature of it. I mean, in episode one alone, we see India and Malaysia. And in episode two, Nepal and, and Africa, the Sahara Desert. It's little things like that, again, that show that Batman isn't just a street-level crime fighter. Again, adds to that whole mythical aspect of the character and his whole spectrum. He's every Batman there ever was in this series. He's every Batman there ever was because we get the chance to explore all those sides Yeah, across hundreds of hours split into 20-minute episodes. We see the technological genius, the detective, the lateral thinker, the warrior, and the one who can wrangle cats. Um, <laughs> Beauty. Precious. But... Uh, it's only this kind of narrative that could really tell that. That's why I think a lot of the movies and the other similar media like it falls short because they don't put the care into seeing all of those sides of the Batman, but it's an important side to hold, and that's why this version rings as close to the comics as possible because only the comics has the other big stretches of time and the big commitment to it, yeah. the issues every week, every month, will have you to be able to see all of these sides of Batman. Absolutely, absolutely. And the other thing I, I did notice, and it did um, really strike me, is Kevin Altieri's direction of this episode, not just with the epic vistas and landscapes in all the different countries, but in the closer scenes, particularly in the dark, we didn't see the prime colours Batman, the bright blue cape and cowl. There's times in this episode where it's almost a midnight blue, and the costume appears almost totally black in some scenes, particularly in the caves and in the uh, Lazarus pit area. And with that beautiful, bold, um, golden oval on his chest, something I still really miss from in the comics, 
he just came across as more of a creature of the night in these two stories as well. There were moments where the differences in the colour and the lighting really lended to that and it made yeah. Batman seem like this figure of terror and this uncertain thing. I particularly think of that one scene in the desert where he tackles those guys in the camel caravan. Uh, stereotypes notwithstanding, this is the 90s. Um, just to see the symbol of the the ears and the long yeah. cape in the in the shadow of the moon, just as this spectral silhouette and the figure of fear that we know him to be. Yes, it makes total sense that we can see those dark colors as we assume from a dark hero, which is something I wanted to talk about. I'm glad it's all come up naturally. Mm -hmm. It somewhat contrasts the brightly colored yet maniacal villainy of Razor Ghul because we get him oh, yes. well, very well. out in the open, just very clear and then those bright greens to mirror the Lazarus pit mm -hmm. but also the bright greens of like Batman comics are sort of associated with like madness and Absolutely. high chaos between like your Jokers and your Riddlers and your Poison Ivies. Absolutely. So that colour contrast is another thing why I love Batman because he's an archetypally dark hero in both his colouring and his attitudes mm -hmm. but that's why it's so interesting when you pair him against light villains because Razor Ghul, his intentions are very noble but he's doing them with incredibly destructive means and to ultimately misguided ends. So that's just another layer that keeps Batman so much more interesting and so different compared to most other heroes in comics right now. Absolutely right. Absolutely. That contrast, I mean, we've said it before, haven't we, where Batman is the dark figure in all his stories, but he's the hero. Mm. And all his villains tend to be brightly coloured, garish, clownish, scarecrows, riddlers, penguins, even Russell Gould, like I said, in the bright emerald greens, even with the Anubis mask, which was terrifying. He's a brightly coloured figure. And like you said, he's got very noble intentions, but with the darkest means possible. And it's a, it's a brilliant, brilliant um, observation, Sam. Thank you. Yeah. I um, As I said with Sandy, there's a big element of the theatrics in all oh, of yeah. Batman and his villains. So we can see that being played up with just the, look, if you were to play this like out on a stage, it makes me think of that episode from Batman Beyond where Batman's antics are translated into a musical or an opera. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That sort of vision of things really lends itself to it, just to be able to create these huge bombastic figures that give the France about the night. It's important to know that that's just something that all these characters are capable of, but have the bright villains and the dark heroes just there completely contrary to what we would expect is just a really strong and interesting thing to say absolutely it's really great because i mean we again we've said this time and time again who's got apart from possibly the flash a better rogues gallery a better cadre of enemies than Batman? it's true because in terms of like just dc you think of the Flash is closely comfortable because you get everything from like the dark hot mirror ver reverse version of himself. Yeah, hyper intelligent gorillas, mm -hmm. uh, really nasty dudes who do things with mirrors, mm. and then all the sorts of guys in between. But then you look at you guys like um, Green Lantern who fights ground cosmic yeah presences, but they're very hard to sort of pin down. Yeah, and then you look at Superman, you go Lex Luthor, Brainiac, uh, Zod, Parasite, uh, Zorro. That's about it. Yeah. Which is Pitlick-ish. Toy Man, is he a threat yeah, anymore? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah, you you struggle to think of other heroes as opposite villains, but you can talk for hours about the people that go up against Batman. Absolutely. Well said.
And let's talk about the people that go up against Batman. Again, we've already met them. We've met Russell Gould briefly um, in Shadows at the end of uh, an episode a few weeks back. And of course, Talia as well has had a time in the sun. But just again, the casting, I mean, to get the original movie Supergirl and the TV Supergirl's mum, Helen Slater, playing Talia al Ghul, and the voice change is completely different. And the legendary oh, national treasure that is David Warner, Chancellor Gorkon from Star Trek, amongst many other people, as Russell Gould. I mean, honestly, when you read the comics, do you not still put those voices to these characters? I put a high gravitas British voice to Russell Gould. It'll probably end up becoming Chancellor Gorkon of <laughs> Star Trek Six fame. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, he's he he's a voice that I could certainly go up there forever, along with Mark Hamill's Joker and Kevin Conroy's Batman. Yeah, absolutely. So that kind of gravitas and just like stern British, I'm better than you nature. We make good villains. I think we talked about this earlier in the yes, show. It happens a lot. <laughs> but uh, I'm perfectly fine with that, to be honest. And yeah, it that level of gravitas and high season Shakespearean performance is something you'd need in a high season Shakespearean sort of villain. Absolutely. And he is a very Shakespearean villain, uh, isn't he? As I said, he probably saw him live. He was there, of course. Of course. He learned from the best. Yeah, Iago's and your daughters of King Lear. Oh, fantastic. Uh, again, uh, listeners, you can probably tell that um, this one was a favourite. I mean, I do want to comment briefly on the hijinks of... Uh, the second episode, I don't remember it being quite as bombastic with satellites and exploding bombs in Lazarus pits and destroying billions of lives across the earth. That's certainly nothing that happened in that era of the Russell Gould comics. And I think what Len Wayne and uh, Denny O'Neill did with episode two was adapt the later 70s and early 80s Russell Gould stories and pray see them into the second episode. But what we did get, and it's become like it has to be woven into almost every appearance of Russell Gould in the comics is the half-naked Batman versus Russell Gould in a sword fight. I mean, like, the, the half-naked notwithstanding, we were thankfully spared that from Christian Bale and Liam Neeson. But the sword, still, fight, was the still sword fight was still there. And I think the sword <laughs> fight is quite crucial. Yes. I think the sword fight lends itself to just a lot of like high stakes and high drama. Mm -hmm. Something about the sword fighting is just very sort of personal and very old world. Like you know it's the round table Absolutely. uh duels at noon du duels at noon in a city square sort of deal. Shakespearean. There you go. So it's a trope that I think hasn't really done been done quite as well in another pair of cat and antagonistic characters. No. It's these two homes of Moriarty that, that always you think of two men in swords. And it's, it's the two gentlemen competents, two honourable men war. And it just works. It really does. And yeah, it's their thing. I think it is. It's their thing. I think if there's going to be like a true sort of antagonistic relationship, the, the, the hero and the villain need to have a thing. That and the Joker's thing is that ultimately they know that there's a doom to their yes. relationship, but they. The Joker always finds ways to twist things into the more chaotic and more mm -hmm. destructive, and Batman will always rise up to meet it. That's their thing. Yes. There's the mutual respect and the old world 
sort of reverence to things that these two have that will always keep them at each other. And there will always be a lot of respect there, but they'll never be able to bend to each other's ways of thinking. Absolutely. I I do love whenever uh, Batman and Muscle Girls come face to face in the comics, it's it's always worth waiting for. I mean, again, a few 80s stories notwithstanding, but as soon as they brought him back in um, the brilliant legacy story which followed on from contagion with the whole virus thing which we're now living in the real world which felt like science fiction a lot of people said god this is corny this will never happen in the real world well guess what folks it has um russell gull and again the whole sword fighting thing it just it just makes me smile it's something i've loved since i was a wee lad since i was seven eight years old when the comics first came out the whole sword fighting duel thing they had was there from the beginning yep absolutely well it's just a indication that yes there's just something really consistent and really strong about that kind of fighting between two characters as skilled as they are it makes for great drama absolutely right we've come to that part of the episode as we always do where we talk about our main takeaways from the story the demon's quest so adam good bad or ugly likes dislikes your standout moments from these episodes i think standout moments have to be just how strong the ending sword fight was as you said it makes me strong enough to want to forgive the somewhat dated sort of like visual racial stereotypes mm-hmm. that they sort of yes, incorporated um i'm going to look past some of that because that's a very sort of product of its time sort of deal it's acceptable but given where i'm gonna say america well, specifically yeah. and the world is now things going past that have since gone through we can't necessarily generalize about dudes in sort of Islamic dress on camel going forth to work for maniacal green terrorists and we can't necessarily think of him Razogul fixating on a male heir as particularly DC anymore either. Mm-hmm. But then again those are sort of key things about the character. And the second one I'm willing to forgive simply because he's six hundred years old and those old fashioned prejudices may still be there. Mm-hmm. But still it's something that may be worth reinterpreting as the character is reintroduced in further stories in this century and this in this decade. But for where it was right then, it is a definitive performance of the yeah, actor performing the character and a great vision and adaptation of a classic comic. Absolutely, it's all very different now. Yeah, it's become a lot more acceptable both politically and um, ethnically I think so but again this is a moment of its time as you said and it's still a fantastic cracking action adventure story now um this this is a uh, probably just dad being dad but oh my I'm so sorry my main takeaway from this episode is a really silly one that's really good um we finally find out Bruce Wayne's address number 1007 Mountain Drive Gotham City. Yes, I wrote that down. (laughs) Uh, That's just me. Uh, I don't remember seeing that before, and I had to to make note of it. If if the package was taken by messenger, that means that the messenger was given the address, so they didn't even necessarily need to put that on the envelope. So the fact that it was written down like that is a great detail part on Danny O'Neill's point, sure. You wrote it down. You had to. You had to take. You had to take. It wasn't even on the screen for that long. A fraction of a second, but I spotted it. One thousand and seven Mountain Drive. There you go. Does it have any significance? 
Um, again, maybe I need to check that out. Um, it probably something really silly that Denny O'Neill and Len Wayne were throwing around. Where, where should we say Bruce lives? And it's probably something that means something to them. Or maybe it's an old address of the DC offices. I don't know. Uh, but um, listeners, there's one for you. If you know the significance of 1007 Mountain Drive, do let us know on the Twitters. And we'll let you know how to get to us um, there. But we finally know Bruce Wayne's address. Uh, when did Detective Comics' first appearance of Batman come out? I know it was 39, but yeah. but roughly. Because if it was like either 7th of October or 10th of July. Mm -hmm. It was May. Okay. So, no. Good good thinking, though. Nice detective work, that boy. Well, I like tried. That. I tried. That's very good. But yes, my main takeaway is we finally find out Bruce Wayne's address. Yes, call me a nerd, call me a geek, and I say thank you. But that's it for now. A very deep episode with a very silly ending. But um, hey, that's us Bat fans. We can go from one extreme to another, the same way Batman can go from detective to crime fighter to world saver. Or Batman going from silly to serious, depending on which decade of comics you're reading it from. Ah, the golden and silver ages, how much we love. Uh, rest well, Adam. Rest, you are a hero of our time. Absolutely. Right, so, um, speaking of heroes of our time, um, you, my young hero, where can the whole universe and denizens of Arkham Asylum find you across the airwaves and on the internet? Well, to look no further for Batman and comics-flavoured things, I review multiple titles a month for Dark Knight News. Catwoman and Suicide Squad are both in excellent spots right oh, now. they really are. But as for my one true love, PC and tabletop gaming, you can find me writing about all manners of things on Our Baby, Our True Love, Our Creation, Fantastic Universes. You can get advanced uh, access to our podcast episodes and all of our articles by becoming a member of the Fantastic Nation or our Patreon. You can also find me visually weaving games, either by Dungeon Mastering Games for No Ordinary Heroes, or bringing many strange Let's Plays on the hostile atmosphere, both on YouTube. Wonderbar. And do check those things out, people. They is proper great. As for myself, you can read my written work just by simply doing a Google search for Steve J. Ray or Fantastic Universes for my news, reviews and interviews across three wonderful websites. And now um, I'm actually even writing for the amazing, the legendary CBR. So check me out there too. As for contacting me directly, please tweet us, both of us. My Twitter is lstevo, E-L underscore S-T-E-E-V-O. If you know the answer to what 1007 Mountain Drive actually means, tweet me, let me know. I love being educated. And you can catch this show as long as, as long as, as well as the Spinner Rack, Mad Love, the Harley Quinn cast. And um, on YouTube, you can also catch DCN After Dark, featuring all my DC Comics News podcast brethren. And you can catch all that on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google Play, or wherever you find podcasts. You can find DC Comics News and Dark Knight News on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube. But um, until you do, this has been the I Am The Night podcast with Adam Ray. Here's the night, and together we are the night. Thank you for listening, and until next time, read more comics. And watch more Batman. <laughs>